Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to A More Perfect Union. I'm Chris Wolf, and joining me this week, our roundtable of radio regulars, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, our Beacon Hill representative, Jeff Roy, our station manager, Peter Jay, and my co-host, Nick Remesong. We can all be engaged in the pursuit of a more perfect union, but in truth, our ability to enjoy life, liberty, and to pursue happiness largely rests on the three branches of government created by We the People back in 1789 the executive, the judiciary, and the legislature. And contrary to what purists would have you believe, each of these branches of government has waxed and waned in terms of its power and significance over the years. In the 1940s, Congress was facing not only a recurrence of the contempt from the people that it faces from time to time, but also irrelevance. It seemed unable to cope with the new world created by the Great Depression, the New Deal, and World War II. So Congress reinvented itself with the Legislative Reorganization Act of 1946, which was again significantly updated in 1970. And now there's talk of the need for another update. And today I'll start by asking you, Nick, how do you see the situation? Thank you, Chris. Yeah, well, basically what I'm looking at is the Congress knew that it had lost prestige. It had ceded a great deal of uh, power and influence to Roosevelt, uh, the uh, Roosevelt administration during the war as we know, pretty much well, worked out pretty well for everybody. <laughs> and they were attempting to grab back some of that prestige. They were attempting to streamline. They reduced uh, the number of committees significantly. They set up uh, a pay raise, you know, just a nice little bonus for themselves. Important there. That's key. Yeah, that's the key. But it was an attempt to, again, streamline and become more modernized and to also it gave some more gave uh, a nod to giving more influenced minority members on committees. Less than you know by except by 1970, basically the feeling was we needed another legislative reform, and they did that at that time, and that also came about with a nod towards gaining back a little prestige and streamlining even further. Well, it's been more than twice the amount of time between the two legislative or reorganization acts now. And Congress seems to have, I don't know, it seems to have struggled to a standstill. There seems to be an an inability to get moving, an inability to really pass effective and meaningful legislation. You mean so, Congress is actually moving slowly, even measured by its own standards? Is that what you're saying? It's Heaven forfend, I can't believe it. 
what I'm sorry, but you're changing my world. I didn't I didn't get my mind wrapped around that concept of moving at the speed of Congress until and, just now. And ladies and gentlemen, Peter Jay has come to the forefront and he'll lead us next. <laughs> well, I did. To, to put a more serious note on it, I mean, we all learned about the balance of power amongst the three governing uh, entities that Chris mentioned. And the thing I was always taught is that it's Congress's job to pass laws. Yes, no. Um, yes. Keep going. Yes. So <laughs> if that's the case, I think clearly in Roosevelt's day, you know, with the New Deal, it Congress probably felt in that time that, you know, laws were being proposed, formed, and finding their way through a somewhat passive Congress uh, or, or a, you know, feckless Congress, call them what you will. But the fact that there were things that were being run through Congress that they weren't getting credit for. And so here we are again, I think, after these two reformations in 47 and 70, where people are looking askance at Congress and saying, why are you here? particularly after the last decade of vitriol and, and the difficulty of trying to make anything happen. Now, I would I would add to that, that, you know, all is not lost. It is not as bleak as it seems. For I was riveted by the searing testimony of Congress when they were reviewing the whole Ticketmaster Taylor Swift debacle and being able to <laughs> lithely navigate through several lyrics um, and seeing to it that this issue, this important earth-shaking issue, was brought to the forefront. Did you so, get your tickets, Pete? Uh, no, I did not. No, no you I, didn't? I mean, no, that, I, that congressional I, action did not help you secure those Taylor Swift tickets? Uh, no, I, you know, wow. I even bought a cardigan sweater in anticipation of going, but, you know. <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, I know. One, I one feel major... for you, but Congress was there for you. They, I know, they, I know, they, they I know. They were taking that issue on, and they were yes, hitting they were. it head on. That's I'm right. going to ask a question, a rhetorical question at the very beginning of this discussion. Excellent. Who among my brethren here sincerely believe that there's a chance in hell the Congress will make decisions <laughs> to reform itself with the current makeup of these lovely bodies. Please, somebody chime in. There, uh, there uh, it's a... not the practicality. It's the uh, evident need for some kind of yeah. uh, reform or transformation. I think that seems to be coming more <laughs> visible every day with the uh, this tiny minority from the majority party uh, seizing control of so many of the important committees and with an agenda that seems exclusively to pursue idle distractions and irrelevances, mm -hmm. you know, when there are so many real problems Do facing the country. Do you think it's idle and in, inconsequential that Pete needs tickets to Taylor Swift? No, I do not. <laughs> but at well, the I same never, time, I, I'm interrogate Pete's musical taste or Taylor Swift's ability. But I'm crestfallen. <laughs> yeah. One of the main uh, reforms of 1970 was the fact that they were attempting to make Congress more transparent. So they brought in the television cameras. That, I think, was a mistake. I think we need to get the cameras out of there. We've got people who are just a little too enamored of their own voices and their own their own uh, images being plastered all over the place constantly. I mean, you can go on C-SPAN oh, 24 hours tell. a day. Oh, pray tell. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you know, I... To, <laughs> you had to make a, a big deal to get a couple of reporters to come and meet you on the steps of the, uh, the you know, the Congress and the Capitol building. Uh, but now, you know, you just have to show up every yeah. now and then. Nick, you're hurting me to the quick here when I'm mm -hmm. trying to get that more cameras. <laughs> 
when I'm trying to get more cameras into the Massachusetts State House, get them to start recording their committee meetings and their hearings, as well as their sessions, getting them to archive all of that, all of that wonderful material so that we, the citizens, can go back in time and say, you know, Jeff, this is actually what you said on the floor when you brought Michael, this up. Michael, Michael, and you here are it late. is. You, you are late are... to the party. Yeah. Well, Guess somewhat. What? It's still, Guess it's still what? not. It's still not. I, I know. We Jeff, record you and I... every session, mm -hmm. and they are all archived. And you can definitely go back. And uh, I actually every learned... committee hearing. Every committee hearing. And um, you know oh what amazed me was uh, there's a company out there called Mass Track, uh -huh. a very expensive service. Uh, I don't subscribe yet. I'm trying to figure out an economical way to subscribe, <laughs> but they actually transcribe all the hearings so you can get a, a written transcript of them, plus you can watch the videos. The transparency that uh, so many were seeking was brought uh, to the forefront during COVID. So you can get clips of absolutely everything that occurs in the state house today. Well, well my it's friend, Mayor Copa, because I guess I, my last real visit to this was before COVID. And as you know, even on this program, as a matter of fact, we talked about that. And I and I made mention that we were not as up to date as a state like Louisiana, which has been doing this now for decades. But pray tell, Nick, that we would take away those cameras from mm -hmm. the United States Congress simply because they get on there and they act like they're in a reality TV show, which they are. Which it is. Uh, <laughs> they're the original reality TV show. Because uh, I can remember going it in, in talking about oh, transparency, the uh, Watergate um, hearings. I walked into those as a young man when I was down there and was able to witness uh, government at its finest, Sam Irvin and uh, Senator Nanawe and the others. I found out that the greatest presence there, at least if you watch the John Dean's attorneys when he was testifying, was his wife, Mo, because the attorneys, before anything, any, any, the testimony started, were basically leaning over John Dean to chat with his beautiful wife, Mo, in the first row of, uh, well, one must of, admit that she was the most picturesque person in the room. Uh, well, I was there too. I thought I was, yeah. you know, looking pretty good. <laughs> I had a, a Jimi <laughs> Hendrix T-shirt on, as I uh, remember. But again, as Pete said, to put a more serious note on it, I I have, I guess, one of the things that as a historian happens to you is when you dig down below the uh, prima facie, that is the piece that's on TV, and you get to the real heart of the politics, you start to lose faith in either individuals first, then a group of individuals, and hopefully, lastly, you lose faith in the institution. I have not lost faith in the institution. Uh, let me be upfront with that part. But I have lost faith in, uh, as you heard me express in many occasions, in many different forums, in what we refer to as our two-party system, which is a misnomer. We don't have a system other than the contrived system of the two parties. And look, I am a party to that uh, just as much as anyone else. I'm a Democratic partisan. I will freely admit that. I like my particular area of the tribe, uh, just like those who are 
uh, tribal in nature, but I'm also pragmatic enough and an American enough to understand that our institution is in trouble. And it's in trouble because that once people are elected, they forget to leave that party mantle and to begin the job of governing for all of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I think, uh, and again, one of the things that I love about uh, about the people that I know who are politicians, and maybe again, this is my closed little circle, is that they happen to be people who have integrity enough that once they are elected, they don't just talk to those of us who are Democrats, if they're a Democrat, or a Republican, if they're Republican. Now, this is not true uh, writ large, but at least they understand that they are there for all of the people once you're elected. And that's where I think we're really breaking down. Uh, I have been impressed. As a matter of fact, I wanted to hug her. Uh, Representative Mace out of South Carolina the other day made some statements uh, on Bill Maher, believe it or not, that were absolutely just riveting for me. Because as a Republican, she was talking what it is that they in Congress need to do for the people. And she's one of the people who are going to, and already said it, she's going to vote against Speaker McCarthy's attempt to try to take Elon Omar off of the Foreign Relations Committee. As a Republican, she's going against the Speaker and against the leader of the of the House in her party. This is what we send them there to do, is to have some... Uh, not only discretion, but also some presence of mind and reasonableness to call out their co-party members when they are doing things that are uh, against what it is that the people want or against reason and rationality. That's the part that I think, uh, uh, Chris, when you're talking about the reorganization, there is something that needs to happen, but I'm not sure that that can happen any more than in the minds of those who were there. I think this is, again, a personality and a party issue that I don't see getting resolved anytime soon. You mean you're asking for people in the legislature to actually consider the greater good? This is mm-hmm. a fresh concept. Oh, mm-hmm. absolutely. I heard well, uh, uh, Michael, there was a, um, <laughs> there was I, a I comment. I hope I'm that, on your list of, um, of politicians who uh, act. And oh, absolutely, that. Jeff. You're, um, you're number you know, two on my list. Number two? <laughs> Number two, yeah. I knew, I knew that would get it. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, just yesterday, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, Alan Earls, who's the uh, Republican town committee chair, had reached out to me. There's a uh, new Republican uh, in the House of Representatives in Massachusetts who just uh, who just joined in January. Uh, he reached out to the two of us and said, "I want to introduce the two of you." Uh, as people who I see very level-headed and uh, you know stick to the uh, the issues and and don't get locked up in in party battles and I'd love to see the two of you get together and if you get together would you send me a Jeff Roy Marcus Vaughn photo op so <laughs> Which I saw uh, this morning I it was in uh, this morning I uh, I reached out to Marcus I said uh, when you're next in the state house uh, stop by I'd love to sit down and talk to you so uh we uh, sat down for a while yesterday, talked about you know what was important to him, uh, what was important to me, and uh, how we could work together. We share a border, and uh, you know uh, the importance of us being together because we have a lot of issues that uh, are local 
that uh, we really should be working together. So it was a great meeting, and uh, I supplied Alan with his uh, photo op, uh, and uh, he ran it uh, in the paper today. And I think it's a start of a, of a good relationship. Um, you know, yes, Massachusetts is heavily weighted uh, towards the Democrats, uh, but there's a very active role uh, for the Republicans in Massachusetts, so long as they are sane. Um, you know, I can tell you that uh, the the chair of the Republican State Committee is not somebody I would put on the sane uh, category. And uh, as long as he's going to be the leader of the Republican State Committee, they are going to walk themselves into irrelevance. But there are so many common sense, great Republicans, many of whom serve uh, in the House of Representatives in Massachusetts, that are great partners uh, in this work that we do together. And I count on many of them uh, as, as great friends and uh, great collaborators on some of the work. Uh, I'll point out uh, uh, the minority leader in the House, Brad Jones, was uh, central uh, to us getting uh, the climate and wind bill done this summer. I served on the conference committee uh, with him and uh, his contributions were uh, you know, just remarkable and us being able to um, get together. And our conference committee is made up of six people, four Democrats, two Republicans. So it's essential that we uh, come together and work together. And I saw it uh, firsthand uh, during that process. So it can be done. And, uh, you know, I see it being done here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, I wish that love would spread on the on the federal level um and i'll continue to push and uh do the work this way because uh, i think uh, the citizens of uh, franklin and medway certainly benefit from me acting this way and i think the citizens of the commonwealth of massachusetts benefit from all of us uh, acting this way and uh you know on that note i'll throw out yet another rhetorical question i'm curious as to what reforms you might recommend to uh, Congress that would push them to act this way? Well, first that off, is... mm -hmm. I'm ahead, crushed, Mark. Jeff, because the uh, I recall, I think it was back in November when I made the same suggestion to you and to Marcus, uh, and yet it took a Republican to get you to move in there. <laughs> well, uh that's uh, not, okay. You don't have to. Uh, I understand I had every my intention. <laughs> I had every intention of uh, meeting up with him. But uh, when I got the challenge, knowing that uh, something would be reported in the Franklin Observer, I said, uh, of I'm course, respond to the challenge. <laughs> uh, but but kidding aside, I'm number one, I'm glad that uh, uh, that you're able to demonstrate that that kind of camaraderie and relationship building can take place after an election. And it's that kind of relationship building that I believe is what I would suggest that Congress uh, start to move toward. But it's difficult when, when each caucus uh, not only stays uh, in lockstep, but that you're not encouraged to express any kind of individuality or differences. Uh, I recall back in the day when uh, I was a youngster in politics and could watch 
especially at the federal level. People who were constantly referring to each other as my friend, we had dinner last night, we had lunch the other night, our wives get together, our families get together. And you don't hear that kind of talk anymore publicly from politicians. So just the idea of considering yourself being a member of the familial group when you're in Congress, I think would be the first thing. But again, that's not something you can, yeah, can either through yeah. resolution or uh, uh, resolution or legislation do. That's got to come from the heart. That's got to mm-hmm. come from again. You're being a you know, and I think that's what's missing in Congress. Mm-hmm. No, I think I think you're right. There's no one crossing the aisle. And I think it goes back more than just a few years. I think it, this this deepest rift, I think, started with um, our old friend Tom DeLay. DeLay's attitude was you did not cross the aisle. You did not make concessions. You did not concede one inch of, of territory to the opposing party. I mean, it was like the old uh, the old Russian standards, you know, never retreat. So it's. There's been, um, you know, there's been concrete set to that over the years, and it's just become more and more solidified that you just you just do not cross party lines or we will come and get you. And I think the last couple of years and the last term, the last uh, administration, the previous administration uh, pretty much solidified that. I mean, they they added to it. They said, you know, this is where we're going to go if you're not in lockstep you will be attacked. So again, you're right. You you can't you can't reform that. You just need to have a, a sweeping change of some sort. And how you can get that, I don't know. You know, um, it's interesting. So this show is probably going to air within days of the debate that mm. the Massachusetts House and Senate are going to have. Uh, each session, as we begin the session, we vote on rules for how we're going to administer the session. And uh, that will be taking place you know, within days of this uh, report. And so I would urge folks that you want to see lively discussions about the way the process should work and how the House and the Senate achieve uh, and get their work done. Uh, you might want to tune in to what's happening uh, up there. And you can watch it uh, streamed live by going to the uh, malegislature.gov website, and uh, you'll see it up front and personal. I'm sure there'll be news reports about what happens, but uh, it's an interesting debate. It's uh, one that uh, I enjoy every two years, and I'm certain that this one will be uh, equally lively. So tune in if you're uh, interested in the process. Then there's the old saw going back probably decades that regardless of whatever epithet-laced description you might have of a person in Congress, you never refer to them publicly as anything less than my esteemed colleague. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there there's a civility that's gone. It is definitely gone, and it's it's become rough and tumble. And now, now the the only the only hope I have with that is that there have been cycles over the years and over the you know the the period of time that Congress has existed where there have been incidences of this type of frozen process. Ranker? I mean, Ranker, Ranker, Ranker was good. Yeah, I remember him, Senator Ranker from Wyoming. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you, you had that sort of thing. I mean, you had uh, congressmen attacking each other on the floor of the House, that sort of thing. Uh, was it and there's, there's no duels anymore. That could be quite the entertaining. Duel, maybe we should bring that back. It'd kind of clean up things, you know, get rid of a little bit of the, um, the more, uh, oh, the less 
transient of people. Or canings. Hey, I went yes, to yes, see yes, uh, Hamilton uh, Tuesday night, and I saw the, <laughs> the duels in action. And yeah. I'm not sure I want to see those brought back. Uh, but the, the oh, caning well, little... uh, that uh, uh, Michael brought up, there's a, there's a great book. I will try to find the title for you. But it describes that whole story and uh, the viciousness at which the politicians would treat themselves. I'm glad that uh, sticks and stones are not thrown anymore and in Congress, but uh, it's, well, it's verbal assaults. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, one of the other avenues that uh, I'll, I'll toss in here, since we're reminiscing historically about the uh, uh, about the Congress, and I think that the uh, uh, the partisanship, obviously, the, it's not new. Um, and some of it is, I think, per, you, you know, fairly well, if those of us who were citizens really concentrated on our history would go back and say, you know what, some of the people who we even uh, set up as heroes fell into that trap of, oh, no, I'm not going to do this on the basis of politics, not on the basis of what's good for the people. And I make reference, and we need to get him back on the show, I make reference to something that uh, Peter Canellis uh, put in his book about, about Kennedy and uh, our good senator. Uh, Kennedy, which is that he stopped the creation of a national health care system under President uh, Nixon, even though Nixon wanted to do it. He wanted to have a national uh, health care system, uh, almost to the tune of a single payer. But uh, Kennedy did not want that to happen because since Nixon was a Republican, he wanted it to happen under a Democratic president, not a Republican president, albeit even at the time, it would have been absolutely wonderful for the country. Now, think back in terms of how long ago that was. And if we had had that kind of system, how it would have evolved up to this point, and we'd be much further down the road in terms of coverage for all of our people, no matter what your status if Kennedy had not taken that position, but had gone ahead and said, okay, yeah, for the for the betterment of the country, let's go ahead and do this. So it, it's important for us to know our history, not only uh, then make sure that we don't put people up on a pedestal without knowing all of the facts, but at the same time, we hold our politicians accountable, which I think at the federal level, we do less of than we do at the local level. For obvious reasons, I mean, if if you're a uh, uh, a California resident, you don't follow the working of your congressman or even your senator as much because not not only are you in a different time zone, but they're so far away uh, that unless the local media covers it, uh, you don't pay attention that much. Well, here, I mean, we uh, for us, I hope. It is relatively a good thing for us to make sure that we keep up not only with our Congress people, but with our senators. But even here, I don't think we do it as well as we should. You know, I think you're right, Michael. I think that's exactly what it is, is we don't. Uh, I mean, the concerns uh, you can talk about COVID kind of pay, take people kind of becoming more insular, trying to just kind of protect their own little fiefdom, their own home for their families. I think that's what it is, is people have just all of a sudden realized that um, if Congress is not going to take care of me, I've got to do something on my own. And people draw inside. I don't know exactly how you remedy that ill or that tendency to become 
less and less involved with those around you. Um, but it's it's something that you know it it frightens me in one on one hand, but on the other, with a uh, perspective of going back and looking at history, I can see it come being somewhat cyclical, and we work through it. We get past it. That's the one great hope that I have that it, this is cyclical, and we're going to work through it and get past it. But it seems to be as virulent as it has ever been. I mean, yes, there's no canings on the floor of the Congress or anything. There's no duels. But at the same time, it is with the worldwide web out there and with what you can do with Twitter. I mean, we've seen what, you know, what the power that something of that nature, which is a a frivolous little bit of fluff. It's nothing out there. It's just a way that you can go out there. And if you're of a mind or you're, you've only got half a mind, you can just spew vitriol and you can just talk about opinions that normally most people would say, are you nuts? But because it's coming out over the internet, it's coming out over Twitter or whatever form they're using, people seem to give it credence. They seem to think that this is, you know, this isn't a a considered opinion and depending on who it's coming from, one that maybe they should take to to heart. More and more information is less and less curated. Mm -hmm. And well, it's let me ask also, this question. Just throw one thing out there that for the 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 spewers of the vitriol, it can be immensely rewarding Absolutely. because the more clicks and views you get, uh, you're going to start to get um, mm-hmm. advertising, right. regardless of your content. Yeah, revenue. So, yeah. so there's a financial incentive for people to to become more extreme and more vitriolic, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And I think that gets to an interesting point. Also, we've been talking so far about the idea that you know Congress is so sharply divided. And that there is uh, all of this enmity and vitriol, you know, running through the corridors. But we also have to consider the fact that a lot of uh, Congress people are actually following their constituents, and that through this notion of uncurated information, the entire country is actually considerably more divided. You know, call it thanks to social media or whatever. But the overlay on that is people tend to say that Congress, in the aggregate, is useless but I really like my guy. In other words, uh, a great example of that, of course, is the very skillful work in terms of his own representation by Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin is Mm. a Democrat in a remarkably red state that carries a considerably difficult issue to reckon with, you know, the coal industry. And so Manchin has to represent his constituents to the best of his ability. And I don't take that away from him. That's his job, is to represent the will of the people who put him in office. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, what I find interesting is that when you listen to him on the Sunday morning pressers, he never comes off as extreme in my mind. And certainly he's very intelligent and articulate. Whether we agree with him or not, he puts forward reasonably cogent cases about why his position is what it is. And of course, there was the contentiousness with, you know, the liberal wing of the Democratic Party when we were trying to push through the big money bills. And he was, you know, not going along for the ride along with Kristen Cinema. But the net of it is that was working for the people who put him in office. So in one sense, we have to step back and consider the fact that all of these people, the 535 people that went to Washington, are representing the will of the 50 states and all of the people in them, 
which are nowhere near as coherent as we would like to think in terms of being called the United States. Mm -hmm. Opinions are not united. And so we've got this, I'm going to call it this vicious cycle between social media and the dog whistle promoters that are continuing to press forward the polarizing agendas that then feed back to Congress, that Congress then feeds it back to the people through social media, and it goes back and forth, and it becomes all the more black and white rather than having any shades of gray whatsoever. And this is one of the things that has locked up Congress and made them less and less relevant. So how it is that they dig themselves out of a deep hole, dug not only by them, but by their constituents, is a serious challenge now. And it begs the notion that, you know, the internet may not necessarily be all benevolent for all things for us. It's a wonderful thing, but there's a downside. Like every single tool, when a human picks up a tool, it can be used for better or for ill. And in this case, we have to figure out how we mitigate that, especially when you see people like Elon Musk touting free speech, when it's really about Muscovision, you know, via Twitter these days, which is where it's headed. Yeah, so, but are we but are we not forgetting one of the other, I think, real impediments to what I would call the constituency holding the uh uh the person accountable, which is gerrymandering. Oh yeah, that I you remember gerrymandering, yeah. Yeah, I mean you take a person like Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mm. do not understand her politics at all. And would think she doesn't that, have any yeah, that, there are no politics. That that's just personal. Well, there's something ignorance. there because because when she goes back in front of her uh, her constituents, she gets reelected. So let's not let let's not fall into the trap of no, there's nothing there. There's got to be something there. And the part that I don't know is I don't know her district. Her people must love her because she gets reelected without any kind of I think substantive challenge. And so it's in. It's important for us, I think, and especially those of us who are liberal. And there's a there's a book that I'm about to uh, embark upon called Listen Liberal, where maybe what's happening is in our mind, we're trying to rationalize these things. And it's, oh, it's their problem. It's their problem. No, it's our problem. And much of it has to do with those of us who are the electorate, because we keep forgetting we live in a republic, not a democracy. And as a republic, the only chance we ever get to comment or to hold an elected official accountable is when we vote. They don't come and ask us our opinion when their bill's up. They don't ask our opinion if they're doing nothing and we don't hold them accountable for that. What they do is every two years in Congress or every six years in the Senate, they come back and then they'll feed us all of these stories about what they've done. And if I haven't kept up with them for that two-year period or that six-year period, all I can take from them is that face value. And my question is for us, how is it then that Kevin McCarthy can spout lies about Schiff and and Stallwell and yet get away with it? And his constituents uh, are saying, oh, yeah, you know, he's right. This guy, uh, you know, he shouldn't be on there because he's selling secrets to the Chinese, which is not true. And why would someone in that particular house say something that you know is not true about one of your colleagues? And I know our state legislature, no one in the state legislature uh, would do that. Right, Jeff? Absolutely not. (laughs) Well, I think part of it is you tell the lie once and you just keep telling that lie and it becomes truth. 
to some people. Yeah, uh, 45 proved that, didn't he? Mm, yes, I'd say so. You just keep saying, people, just keep repeating it. And after a yeah. while, people are starting to question, oh, well, why did you do that? No, yeah, I went I back to a, a little German gentleman, as I believe, um, some years ago. But what this part of what this brings up for me, the whole the whole aspect of reorganization is and in particular that maybe politics and people's concerns are becoming far more individual and more centric to their own community. Do we return some of the power and how would you do that? How, how could we do that to the state legislatures? Do we return? Do we give them greater power? They can take as much power as they want within the state, but that that can be taken away from them again through the federal process of appeals and courts and everything. Do we give the states more control of their own destiny? Something like mansion. I mean, the coal industry. Yeah. Where's the coal industry going? That still seems to be up in the air. Certainly, the coal industry has been gutted to a certain extent, part of it because of, you know, the exposure of own, their own internal corruption and the fact that most of these companies will do anything they can to get it out of the ground as cheaply as possible. But that's they've been doing that since day one. So how do we make sure that the states feel that they are protected and I'm protected in my community and then outward within the state and then outward into the federal level? Can that be done? That's my I think, question. I think part of it depends upon the nature of the issue. When you get to an issue that involves human rights, I think the federal response is probably important. So, you know, we don't have any states that are, you know, suppressing human rights that we can name right off the bat. But when I say human rights, I would say that healthcare is a human right. And many people internationally would, would agree with that, which mm -hmm. says that healthcare then ought to be managed at the federal level, all of it, to try to make healthcare more uniform. Right now, we cannot move around this country without considering the ramifications of a destination we want to move to, and is my healthcare going to be diminished by moving there? Exactly. You know, what are the insurance policies? What does the state legislature say about it? What is the federal involvement? You know, am I on Medicare or not? You know, which tends to unify things, but. There, So there are some very real issues where we could question the value of states' rights and that some sort of federal overlay is appropriate to protect those those human rights over states' rights. From there, I think that you know the floor is more open with respect to what states can and cannot do. And it gets to the larger argument about whether or not we're a loose confederacy of states or whether or not we're really a truly united states at the federal level. Be careful what you ask for, Pete, because I, know. I think if you uh, if you uh, just reflect back on what happened with Roe versus Wade, that's right, and the elimination of federal mm. protection for, for women and reproductive rights, uh, that just goes to show you probably not a good idea to send everything uh, back to the states because. Now you've got uh, people crisscrossing the country looking for protection of reproductive rights. It's mm -hmm. not something that I would have predicted to happen, uh, but it, but it's out there. I do also, uh, before I forget, because I know there are people who take copious notes from these shows, uh, and I had mentioned a book earlier. Uh, the name of that book is The Field of Blood. Violence in Congress and the Road to the Civil War, and it uh, goes and uh, recovers the long lost story of 
physical violence on the floor of the U.S. Congress. And this is back in the 1800s wow. and mm -hmm. uh, talks about mortal threats, canings, flip desks and all out slugfests. And uh, they even talk about one representative even killed another in a duel. Mm -hmm. So if you want to see Congress at its finest, uh, that's a great book for you to read. Again, it's called The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress and the Road to Civil War. And it's written by Joanne B. Freeman. Uh, yeah. And I'll conclude my thought by saying I fervently believe in the power of the states to do things for them. And I think our governments are set up so that we have local governments who handle our uh, things uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Franklin has its own government. 351 communities across mm -hmm. the Commonwealth of Massachusetts have their own governments. And then you have your state government that does a, a broader array of, array of issues, but you know keeps it close to home because, again, we are a government of the people, by the people, for the people. So we want to keep that government as close to ourselves as possible. And the federal government wasn't supposed to be uh, as powerful uh, as it has become. But, you know, it's a third uh, level of government that we have. And we're constantly having these tension as to what belongs at the federal level, what belongs at the state level, what belongs at the local level. And I think this debate will go on as long as our country is around. Mm -hmm. no, well, let me contribute right. to this that uh, I am one who is... Uh, who is deathly afraid things being sent back to the states because one of the first things that happened when the state rule uh, was applied by the Supreme Court when they took away the first Civil Rights Act. And again, uh, you know, I keep reminding our listeners and my colleagues here that uh, Roe v. Wade was not the first time that a right was taken away that in the first Civil Rights Act of 1870, which uh, a few years later was overturned by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional, which guaranteed not only freedom of movement, but also uh, protected the right to vote uh, in 1870, right after slavery was eliminated. It then became the state's obligation to set up rules to govern and protect the rights of its newly freedmen. And what happened? Alabama, the first state, then created all of these laws to restrict the movement and the opportunities for its newly freed slaves. And on top of that, because these things were sent back to the state, they granted clemency, basically, uh, and pardons to all of those who were the erect, you know, the uh, insurrectionist. Uh, during the Civil War and protected them and gave them the right to vote again. So we must be careful. It's important for us, again, to know our history and to understand that, as Jeff just pointed out, the federal government was not intended to be the be-all and end-all, but it was intended to be the backstop and the ultimate protector of our citizens, all of us not just the few who were in the original framing of the Constitution who were deemed worthy uh, of being American citizens, but all of us. So, Mike, I guess I'd like to return to the basic question as, as we've talked about Congress in general, the people and so on, but at the same time, is there some solution out there with respect to Congress having an opportunity in the aggregate to redeem itself? So what kind of reformation would work? 
And I'm sure at this point, you know, there'll be a momentary running of crickets and silence <laughs> while we ponder that question. But mm. well, there's yeah. something that that was said, uh, and I'll throw this out for discussion, folks. But there was something that was said. I don't think it was Elon Musk, but there was, uh, but there was another uh, industrialist who said that one of the problems we have is that we don't have a national uh, a national goal to distract us. And to bring us together at the same time. Yes, a good uh, war, as they used to say. Yeah. Well, it, well, the common I, enemy. I don't want to mm-hmm. go that far. <laughs> let's try something. <laughs> let's try something a little more productive and peaceful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, for example, revitalization. And I've said this repeatedly over the last thirty years, and I get laughed at. I I I can't tell you how much I get laughed at. But the revitalization of our railroad system into a uh, an mm-hmm. electronic uh, uh, an electric magnetic rail system, all right. Uh, it's a hundred year project, all right. I freely admit it's a hundred year project. It's something that's going to span all of our lifetimes. But at at the end of the day, what do we end up with? We end up with new technology, more jobs. We end up with mass transit. Uh, capabilities to move us from New York to Los Angeles in a matter of hours, not days, in a matter of hours from New York to Los Angeles. And at the same time, we have something that all of us can stand behind. We have something that uh, that uh, all of the polls, uh, polling uh, uh, outlets tell us that people are wanting good jobs, uh, relative uh, uh, prosperity for everyone and the ability to eliminate things like homelessness, poverty in this country. But we don't have those kinds of goals uh, that will focus our politicians in one direction. Your thoughts, folks? Well, the last time I can remember that would have been the space race. And of course, that was tinged yes. with a good deal of politics, but it was indeed. It was, a you know, what's out there? Can we get out there? Can we get, you know, how do we get there? And it did spark a, a lot of great innovations, um, you know, technology, and it created a lot of jobs in certain areas, uh, Houston, Florida. So, yeah, the, but rail, it's how excited can people get about rail? I mean, I'm not diminishing it. I think you're right. We need to be able to move about this country more efficiently, and the rails need to be completely revamped just because. It's a it's an infrastructure that we haven't touched in decades. But I love the idea of uh, of a goal of uh, for transportation. I mean, um, Eisenhower had a goal of the national highway system in the fifties. Uh, I think a similar goal along the rails would be wonderful. Um, I I would love a national goal uh, to cure cancer. Um, and I think mightily about uh, the nineteen eighty three report on the state of education in America and what that led to in terms of uh, education reforms throughout the country. Um, Again, uh, it was a national conversation, uh, but the states took on the role uh, of reforming education. And I think uh, those of us who live in Massachusetts uh, may well remember uh, in 1994, uh, the reform that took place uh, in our state. So uh, I, I can't agree more with you, Michael, about setting these goals and having the discussions around them and uh, not focusing on a, a, a goal 
of, of the good war. I like to think of the good things. And, uh, you know, I was encouraged when uh, President Obama appointed Vice President Biden with the moonshot to uh, cure cancer. I thought that was a very laudable national goal and would love to see more efforts uh, put in there. What, look at what happened uh, when COVID had uh, occurred. And we had a national goal of coming up with a vaccine that could uh, prevent further outbreaks. And uh, much of that work creating that vaccine and manufacturing that vaccine took place right here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So when we put our minds and heads together, we actually can accomplish uh, good things. So let's come up with a goal list and send it to our good uh, leaders down in Washington and see, uh, give them a checklist and give them a whole uh, master plan for uh, mm. future and see if they adhere to it. Yeah, well, someone needs to set a curriculum. Like, <laughs> yeah, what I would like to propose is this, uh, uh, and I'm going to throw this out to our listeners, however many of you there are out there. I would propose that you both send of them. us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, but yeah, they're locked sister, in. <laughs> I don't think my sister's available today, so one of them may be missing. <laughs> but uh, but seriously, uh, if you're listening to this program, please send us a uh, one of your uh, one of your ideas for a national goal, and then let's get Jake uh, Olkenkloss on our show. And then let's give him uh, not only our ideas, but anything our listeners may send in mm. um, uh, in terms of a national goal. And we can start with the few that we started here. Uh, I was very disappointed in President Obama when he decided to defund uh, at the time, not 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 decommission, but defund NASA. And then we went on this spree of having to contract to get our uh, astronauts to the International Space Station. I thought that was an abomination. I thought that that was giving up something that as a nation, again, sort of destroyed uh, the whole national fabric of a goal. Uh, when we don't have our own agency that can move our astronauts from Earth to the International Space Station and primarily have people come to us to sort of taxi a ride, but we had to go around the around the world asking people, hey, can we hitch a ride uh, on your next shot to the International Space Station? Now, how does that even sound, all right, as a country as well off and as well positioned as we are? So I was disappointed in him in that. But I'm also very pleased with Biden and his administration trying to revitalize NASA. And now we're not only going to go back to the moon, but use the moon as a platform to go to Mars. Again, that could be a 25, a 50, a 100-year mission, but it's something worthwhile. And I'll never give up my cargo pants, as a matter of fact, <laughs> as a result of coming from uh, the Apollo missions and stuff. I'll never forget those guys coming out and I'm going, wow, Pockets on your legs. Isn't that cool? Oh, how about Tang? <laughs> Did you enjoy that? That was, uh, a, great was a wonderful thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, I would offer this helpful Half household long. hint right now. The household hint is pour a jar of Tang in your dishwasher. So yeah, that way your dishwasher becomes sparkling clean once again. Or down just your like drink. it was brand new. Yeah, absolutely, man. Or put it into your disposal and stuff to make that feels fresh and, you know, and great. Or uh, ice cream dots. You know, that's there another invention uh, mm -hmm. uh, from the space program. The little ice cream dots, you know, you put them in the thing, put them in your mouth, and they burst in your mouth full of ice cream. I mean, man, how cool is that? All right. Oh. Uh, 
Pens that write upside I, down. I couldn't help feeling right. um, the Fisher's flashbacks mm. as you were talking to my days growing up in the UK uh, many, many decades ago. Uh, just how yeah, all the newspapers would be complaining about how come Britain, we used to be the number one superpower in the world. How come we're no, we can't put a man on the moon. How come we are not behind in whatever field of technology was the, the buzz word of the day. And well, there, yeah, it's happened. It happens to countries all the time. They slide down the, uh-huh. the scale and then they have to deal with um, being less than they were. So it's, well, a, there was, there was a great yeah. joke at that time during the space race about Britain's space program, which did exist. That uh, you know have suffered a major face, uh, you know, a major catastrophe when the uh, entire space program rolled off the back of the pickup and crashed on the road. So, yeah, well, yeah. speaking well, along the road, I had visuals. Posh of but that. fair. Yeah. <laughs> U.S. astronauts along the roadside trying to thumb a ride <laughs> to the moon. <laughs> yeah. Well, but you I, know, I, it doesn't I would do offer... well. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I would offer a a my final thought as a solution uh, with respect to Congress and the duels and the enmity and the 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 issue of you know physical violence. Uh, I would like to go out and maybe I could even fund it myself. I'd like to go out and buy 535 super soakers. <laughs> non-lethal, and, and, uh, yeah, non-lethal. Weapons. You know, which which by the way would have an interesting byproduct of making you know uh, C-SPAN one and two ever more watchable. Uh, because, you know, it's supposed to have a visual component, uh, just like a national goal, be it the highway system or the space race, has a strongly visual component. And therefore, I would request that our listeners consider the visual component. There's not a great visual component with the cancer moonshot thing. We all believe in it, but we don't get to see it, feel it, touch it, pick it up, move it around and say, I like this. So goals. So Pete, that is that the can... uh, the goal you're going to send in? Is super soakers? Because well, you that's know, I, it. I love you know? Michael's idea. Let's get our listeners to send in those goals. Uh, so you have goal number one: super soakers. Uh, what substance? It could are even you going be the audience participation. Yes, but what substance are you going to put in these super soakers? Ah, Dr. That's, a, that's, that's an argument you know involving congressional debate. Okay, well, that's that's my concluding thought. Well, I'll tell you, uh, 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 my vote is for slime. <laughs> you know, that same stuff that they use on the on, on Nickelodeon. Oh, you know, God, yeah. When they yeah. bring in the, you know, the NFL players and they slime them. Yeah, it, it's great stuff. It's edible, uh, non-toxic. As long as the colors are red and blue. Mm-hmm. So visual slime, not the verbal kind. <laughs> True. Okay, at this point, I am nonplussed, so I'm going to stop talking. Okay, we're getting punchy, so someone needs to bring us home. Uh, <laughs> Nick and Chris, you you got to help us out. Well, for those of us who are still plussed, another more perfect hour has flown by, and we have to say goodbye until next week. If you would like to weigh in on our discussions, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Let's send in your ideas about what the great, the next great national project should be for the country. You can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. If you enjoyed our discussion, please let us know. If you disagree, all the more reason to let us know. You can also share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online. Just visit our website, wfpr.fm. For Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Jeff Roy, our station manager, Peter J, and my co-host, Nick Ramosong, I'm Chris Wolf. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union.
This is Franklin Public Radio.